You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Today's guest is Vinci Choi. Vinci is a registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, and health at every size advocate based in Canada. In this episode, Vinci and I discuss mindful eating and identify which parts of it are diet culture BS and how to practice mindful eating through an anti-diet lens. It's a valuable discussion and I can't wait for you to hear it. Hi, Vinci. How are you today? Good. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome. It's so exciting to have you on the show. I can't wait for our conversation. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, let's just dive right in. I'd love to hear about your journey from starting as a bariatric dietitian and then evolving into who you are today, which is a certified intuitive eating counselor and Hayes advocate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I had been a dietitian for a number of years before I started working in a bariatric clinic. And I think most dietitians received a very conventional weight-centric training. I think I'm someone who grew up and with and still has a lot of privileges and so didn't necessarily really see the impacts or understand weight stigma and its impacts kind of like earlier on in my career. And so how I ended up working at a bariatric clinic in the first place was I had always kind of started mostly full-time, but sort of part-time, like I would have like 0.8 or 0.9, like full-time equivalent sort of positions, and then always had my private practice on the side. And so kind of throughout those first few years in my career, I was always just like making lateral moves within this, the same organization to try to get like smaller full-time equivalents so that I could, you know, spend more time in my private practice. And so I think when this position at the bariatric clinic came up, it was like a 0.6 full-time equivalent. So that meant that I was there three days a week. And then I was working in my private practice two days a week. And I guess while I was working at my bariatric clinic was when I had first heard of the food psych podcast. So I was, you know, doing a search on podcasts because my husband and I would go on road trips and listen to podcasts. And I was like, hmm, are there any dietitian ones out there? And so I heard the food psych podcast where it was interesting because at the time, I think she had kind of come out with some interviews with Evelyn Tribbley and this was like 2016 and Evelyn had actually come to like my city or I had seen her speak live once. And Evelyn is such 
a charismatic speaker or a charismatic person. Like if you've ever met her or seen her talk. And I remember like even years before that, I had read the book Intuitive Eating, but again, because of, I think my own privileges, like the way that I had interpreted the book was, oh, like if you eat intuitively, then you will get to a quote unquote healthy weight. Or if you want to lose weight, you need to just stop focusing on dieting and just eat healthy and you would lose weight. Like that was kind of the attitude that I had. And so listening to the food psych podcast and hearing that interview with Evelyn again, I was like, wait a minute. So, you know, can you be body positive and still want to lose weight? I remember was one of the first questions that I had coming out of it. And that's sort of what kind of led me down this rabbit hole in a way of like learning more about intuitive eating and health at every size and weight inclusive care and kind of broader social justice movements. And that's kind of how I shifted in my own work today. Wow. Very, very interesting. I have a few questions. First of all, you are the content and community manager at Food Psych, right? Yeah, I am. Mm -hmm. Okay. What's that like? I'm just really curious. (laughs) Yeah. So it was interesting how that came about. Like I remember at the time, Christy had a free Facebook group. Yeah. She had a free Facebook group and I sort of like used it as a way to like practice my counseling skills almost, or say like responding to people's questions or like commenting on people's posts and stuff as I think as a way, even for myself to get a sense of like, what are people asking and how might I respond to some of those questions? And I guess Christy took notice and she actually reached out to me and was like, Hey, would you like to be a moderator of this Facebook group? And that's kind of how it started. And then eventually she brought me on as the community and content associate. So Christy just came back from maternity leave like a few months ago, and she's really, I think, like pulling back on a lot of the podcast stuff. So now it's on like the last season and she really wants to focus on her writing and on being a mom. But before that, I did the show notes for a lot of her episodes. I help manage the social media and also for her course as well. I help moderate the forums and also help out with the monthly Q and A's that she offers to people who are part of her intuitive eating fundamentals course. Wow. Okay. That's really cool. I love hearing how you kind of just were an engaged participant in the community and then you stood out and it's evolved into something really natural and sounds like a great fit for you. So I know so many people who listen to this podcast, listen to food psych or have in the past. So it's kind of cool to know that you're in that community as well. Mm. Um, Yeah. So to bring it back to kind of that journey you had, were you convinced and you can say no, but (laughs) Were you convinced before you ran into intuitive eating and health at every size that weight was an indication of poor health? Like, did you have that belief? And I know it's very normal for people to maybe be raised with that or believe that, especially going into dietetics. So I'm Mm -hmm. curious to know. Yeah, I would say, yes, absolutely. That was a belief that I held. And I think 
around that time that I was working at the bariatric clinic was also when the AMA in the States and then also like the Canadian Medical Association here, the CMA, like declared quote unquote obesity as a chronic disease. And yeah, that those were definitely beliefs that I held. Mm, okay. So were there any moments in the clinic where you kind of started to see that belief not be so true or any moments like listening to food psych where you start to open your eyes to, to your mission. Cause I read on your website that your purpose is really to make sure others find ways to connect to health outside of size. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious to see how you started to move towards that new belief. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because a conversation that's been kind of coming up for the past few years, actually, is that like organizations and like, you know, the one that I was probably influenced by the most, like organizations like Obesity Canada are really good at this double speak of like, we need to, you know, reduce weight stigma and still like help people lose weight and still help manage obesity. And so even the language that an organization like Obesity Canada uses is they talk about how like obesity is not about weight and it's a lot of like mental gymnastics on their part. (laughs) And at the same time, in some ways, at least for me, it kind of started that conversation that, you know, even as a bariatric dietitian at the time, I felt like, well, I wasn't necessarily focusing on weight. I was focusing on health outcomes. And I did find it frustrating when people or patients or people or clients or however you want to phrase it, you know, they would be focused on how much weight they were losing with the surgery or when their weight loss slowed down or like whether they were losing as much weight as people who had the surgery at around the same time. Like, I think even at that point, like I really wanted it to, you know, not be about weight, but about health, but it was sort of this like very fence straddling kind of belief that I had. And I think like learning more about health at every size or weight inclusivity or like fat activism that really kind of pushed me over to kind of shifting my beliefs around weight and health. Mm, I love that. Yes. It must've been so interesting to see the the mental gymnastics you have to do and how there's an emphasis, oh, we're focused on health outcomes, but then you also see that there is this focus on weight loss and it sounds like a confusing place to be. Okay. So you're also the author of the mindful eating workbook, which is really cool. And it outlines simple mindfulness practices for nurturing a healthy relationship with food. But I'm very curious because just thinking about the word mindful eating, I always in my head feel like it's been co-opted by diet culture to you know, actually encourage disordered patterns. So I really want to have a conversation about an anti-diet approach to mindful eating. What's that distinction there? Like, how do you know mindful eating is actually an anti-diet approach? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is definitely like a tricky space to be in. Cause I agree with you, like a lot of mindful eating. And to be honest, like how I was initially introduced to mindful eating was in a very like 
diety, like weight loss focused way, right? Like often it's this idea. It's like, well, if you eat slower, then you'll feel your hunger and better. And then you'll stop kind of idea or, Mm -hmm. or you need to, you know, like, slow down and like savor every bite Mm. or like eat without distractions. Like there's lots of rules around mindful eating and what mindful eating quote unquote is supposed to look like. And yeah, like to me, I don't think that that's what mindful eating should be about, but I think even in spaces that sometimes like claim to be anti-diet with mindful eating, I still find a lot of that fat phobic language or beliefs coming in. So it's really tough. There's a lot of stuff in there for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, and that's what I was curious about. And I guess when it comes to like actual healing your relationship with food, what would you say true mindfulness around food might look like? Yeah. Well, yeah, these are tough questions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I I guess I should preface it by saying like that that book, the workbook was published I think three and a half years ago now. And like I would say I'm a different practitioner now than I was then. I don't know if I would agree with the idea that mindful eating is like the key to like healing a person's relationship with food. I mean, I think it can definitely be a part of someone's journey or path or whatever, but I don't think it's necessarily a key ingredient. I'm trying to think like, would I even say that it has to be an ingredient in someone's recovery? I don't know. Like, I'm sure there are examples of people who like recover and like mindful eating isn't a part of it. Right. So I'll just start by saying that I think like the way that I like to talk about mindfulness and mindful eating is like, so if we think of mindful eating as essentially it's taking the practice of mindfulness and bringing it to the eating experience. And what mindfulness is, is awareness or non-judgmental awareness of the present moment. And so when you take it like that way, then you can sort of see how mindfulness can be used as a tool or mindful eating can be used as a tool because it's about trying to shift your thinking to a non-judgmental, like more compassionate way of looking at things. It's about awareness and engaging your senses and being in the present moment. So another way that I will talk about mindful eating and mindfulness as well is that like my end goal when it comes to mindful eating isn't for someone to necessarily heal their relationship with food. And it's definitely not for weight loss. It's not even for someone to, you know, eat slower or enjoy their food more or eat without distractions. Like to me, like mindful eating is really just an invitation to engage with eating in a way that's perhaps different from how a person might've been eating before and seeing if that opens up more possibilities and choices for them or opportunities for them to work with. Mm, Okay. Honestly, I put you on the spot with that question. I feel like you really handled it well. So (laughs) because I really do think the distinction there are a few things. There's that non-judgmental piece 
where diet culture kind of infuses a little bit of judgment into mindful eating, which is, oh, we don't want to be kind of like, we don't want to be eating as much. It feels like a judgment baked into that. Mm, absolutely. So like the decision, yeah. an anti-diet approach to mindful eating is there's that non-judgmental side. Like you are open to eating as much as you need, you know, adequate amounts, like variety, all of that pleasurably, like all of those things. And then you also mentioned, which I know is a huge goal of so many of my clients, connection to the present mm-hmm. when it comes to being around food. Yeah, um, And I think that's something that can absolutely be used through an anti-diet lens. Mm-hmm. 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 So when we talk about being present around food, what does that look like? Like, what would you say being present around food can look like? Obviously there's so many different ways, but Mm -hmm. I'm curious. Mm -hmm. I think like if somebody is looking for, you know, like a tangible way of like being more present with food or being more present with the eating experience, one way that someone can do it is, you know, kind of going through like each of the five senses essentially. So this is more of like an activity or exercise that someone can do. Like, it's not to say this is how you should be eating all the time, but it's kind of like, okay, like give this activity a try. And then at the end, or maybe I'll just go through it and I'll give sort of the reflection, (laughs) the reflection questions at the end. So, you know, like have your food in front of you and we'll start with the sense of sight, right? Like kind of looking at the food and, you know, pay attention to like, well, what is the sense of sight telling you about this food, right? Like what is it telling you about maybe the color, the shape, you know, what can you maybe guess like about the texture of food or maybe like even the temperature of the food, if there's like steam coming off of it, like first even just kind of start with, well, what are my eyes or what is my sense of sight telling me about this food? If that's, if, if you are some, if the sense of sight is available to you and yeah, that's kind of what I should preface all of these things. Like is if these senses are available to you next, you might kind of go to your sense of smell. So depending on what the food is, maybe you lean into it and smell it. Maybe it's a piece of food that you hold up to your nose and smell, but what is again, your sense of smell telling you about the food? What does it smell? Like, is it a very pungent smell? Is it very slight? Like maybe you're smelling something that you never realized that this food smelled like before. And then even with, you know, picking it up, like if it's a food that you can pick up, that's kind of engaging your sense of touch as well. And then you put it in your mouth and maybe again, you get the sense of touch. You're also getting the sense of taste. You're also kind of getting that sense of smell that's kind of at the back of your palette. And so it's kind of like now you're trying to do three senses at once sort of idea. And then as you're chewing the food, that's where often the sense of sound comes in as well. Like what kind of sound does a food make? Is it crunchy or is it more of like a smooth, creamy food that doesn't really make a sound? And then sort of like, like advanced (laughs) sixth sense, but not really seeing ghosts, but then starting to notice like, what are some of the thoughts and the emotions that are coming up, like as you're eating the food. So I think as you're starting, like going one by one through the different senses as a way to kind of like notice these sort of things. 
And then once you're done, you know, maybe a couple of bites doing that, then it can be a moment to reflect, like even after this activity, you know, how did doing that change the way that you eat, if at all? And perhaps like what are some elements of the activity that you might want to bring into your eating? And like, I think for some, like the most, I don't know if obvious is the right word, but yeah, like often the most obvious one is that like when you're trying to go through the senses one by one, in most cases, it's probably going to slow you down. And I think that's one of like the biggest misconceptions of mindful eating. And I think I say this because it's also reflects how I was exposed to mindful eating initially was, you know, like there's this idea that, oh, mindful eating is about eating slowly, but it's not eating slowly, like for the sake of slowing down. It's like when you try to engage each of your senses and focus, then yeah, like you are probably going to eat slower. And that's really like what the slowing down is for is giving you a chance to engage your senses. I think there are some people who with more practice or whatever, that they're not slowing down significantly, but still engaging your senses. But I think that's one of the misconceptions of mindful eating. It's just about Mm -hmm. like eating really slowly and savoring every bite and like, sure, but there (laughs) needs to be a purpose for the slowing down, not just slowing down for the sake of eating slowly. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great distinction. And I also appreciate how you kind of outline it. You can be engaging multiple senses at once and it doesn't have to be this slow process where you're just checking off, okay, which sense am I going to engage with next? And yeah, that makes so much sense. And while you're talking, I feel like there's gotta be a connection to gratitude when you engage in paying attention so closely to what your experience is in the present. Like, I really feel like that would be something if I'm noticing a flavor that I particularly enjoy or discovering for the first time, I feel like that would be something that naturally comes up is just this gratitude. Like, wow, I'm so happy and appreciative that I found that had this experience. That's just something that came up for me while you were talking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I don't know. Something to think about. So you mentioned using mindfulness to recognize body signals. And I think that's really helpful to this community because many of us are so disconnected from our body, right? So mm-hmm. how might one might use mindfulness to start tuning back into the signals of their body? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess one of the ways that we can do this is if we like kind of step back and think about, you know, what mindfulness is like mindfulness is based on Buddhist sort of traditions and really what ended up happening when I think like John Kabat-Zinn kind of brought it over to the West and like created MBSR, which is like mindfulness-based stress reduction. It was really about like, unfortunately, I think in some ways, like stripping it away from those Eastern or like religious sort of roots. But when we think of how mindfulness really started, it's really based in meditation. And I know like 
this idea of like meditation sounds all like incense or I don't have time for this. Or people kind of feel like my mind is like just wandering all the time. I can never like quiet my mind or whatever. And again, like mindfulness or meditation is not necessarily about quieting your mind. It's not about like turning it into nothing. I mean, yes, there are certain types of meditation, like where that is kind of like the end goal, but especially when you're someone who's new to it, I think, again, it's thinking of that mindfulness definition of like non-judgmental awareness of the present moment. So you might be sitting in meditation and like noticing, oh, wow, like I have lots of thoughts here, but it's just about being like, oh, okay. Like these are here and not thinking of them as like being bad for being there. Cause that's where like the judgment sort of comes in. And it's really just kind of like recognizing them. And sometimes the imagery people will sometimes use is thinking of these thoughts as like leaves on a stream and sort of like watching them pass by or another imagery that sometimes people use is thinking of them as bubbles and like kind of floating by and they'll kind of pop in the air eventually. But I guess where I was trying to get at answering your original question of how to use it to notice like body signals. I think that's where it can come in. So a couple ways that you can do this is one, a very common guided meditation is one that's called a body scan. And so often in these meditations, you know, it's this idea of going from like, say like all the body parts from like your head to like your shoulders, like all the way down to your toes and on each side or whatever. And just noticing like what sensations might be there. Is it like a tingly sort of sensation or is it a heavy sort of sensation or whatever it might be? And I think like it's a good baseline kind of activity that people can do to sort of like practice checking in. But of course, like where people are interested in body signals is when something is happening, right? And like there are some easy ones. Like I think for the most part, people know when they need to go to the bathroom and there's no judgment about it. Or like people know when they are hot or people know when they are cold. And so sometimes it's taking a second in these situations and being like, okay, well, what is your body telling you that makes you know that like you need to go to the washroom? And like, you know, it's kind of almost like burning sensation, right? And then like, it's almost like an urgency that you feel like when you need to go to the washroom or if you're feeling hot, like maybe you're noticing that the temperature of your skin is very hot. Maybe there are certain parts of your body that tend to like get more sweaty and clammy, that kind of idea. And then, you know, you can move into things like, okay, well, how do you know when you are feeling hungry or how do you know when you are feeling anxious? And I think that's often why there is a connection between say like anxiety or stress or eating is because a lot of times for a lot of people, anxiety and stress show up like in our chest or stomach kind of area. And so it makes sense that we feel that like food can soothe those feelings in those areas, because oftentimes that's also where hunger shows up Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very good examples there. While you're talking, I'm just so curious now. I often see 
individuals experience extreme physical anxiety and it makes it mm-hmm. difficult for them to eat mm-hmm. or they'll avoid eating because they are having such an anxious day. Like maybe they're feeling mm-hmm. nauseous or they are feeling tense and they just can't imagine eating that because of that. And what do you recommend as a dietitian when people run into that situation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think like one thing that I often say to my clients is like something is more than nothing. So if this is someone who has an eating disorder and maybe they have a certain meal plan that they're on or whatever, like this depends on like your level of care and where you are at. Like I tend to see people who have more like of a disordered eating kind of phenotype rather than a diagnosed eating disorder or or are further along in their recovery. So there is a bit more flexibility in terms of like eat something and it doesn't necessarily have to be the full amount. And like, also recognize, okay, this discomfort is here because I am feeling anxious. So is there something for me that will can help me manage my anxiety so that I am able to eat a little bit more later kind of thing? Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I think sometimes it's like if there is room for flexibility, and I know it depends on the person too, like trying to kind of make room for that flexibility um, in terms of you know, are there options that are easier to eat or are there options for maybe spreading out a certain meal, that kind of idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Really helpful advice there. I think that's great. Something is better than nothing. Awesome. So I'm curious, like, what are your quick tips for helping people start incorporating mindfulness into their relationship with food? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I'm like a couple things. I, I'm someone who like often has like a couple thoughts coming at once. And I'm like, okay, like you cannot say them both at the same time. So, you know. so I'll give you space. Take a I'll keep in mind you have multiple things coming no. up. So one is I think like people can sometimes get turned off of the idea of mindfulness because they either think it's like woo woo, like yoga, meditation, like wellnessy kind of stuff, which I think for some people is in and of itself triggering, which makes sense. And I also think there are people who think like it's something that, you know, takes a lot of time because I think there is another school of thought where like, you know, if you're getting into like mindfulness, you have to have a whole mindfulness practice or you're dedicating time every day to like meditate and blah, 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 like full disclosure, like I do not. And so I think the language that I often use when I even introduce these concepts to my clients, like I rarely use like the word mindful or mindfulness anymore. Often I talk about, you know, like noticing, paying attention to, right? And so like, even with some of the things that I talked about today, like when it comes to engaging the senses, yeah, like, have you spent some time like noticing what your food 
sounds like as weird as that that might be a weird one like maybe a more relevant one might be like have you noticed how it feels in your body when you're hungry or like how does your body tell you when it's hungry or have you noticed like what makes a food enjoyable or satisfying for you right so I might use the word notice I might use like paying attention. I talk a lot about like being curious and experimenting because I think in particular for people who have eating disorders, like they tend to have, and it's not just people with eating disorders. A lot of us tend to have like perfectionistic all or nothing sort of tendencies, or like it sometimes even can come from a place of pleasing. And so it's like, well, what would it be like to let go of this idea that there's a right or wrong and just approach it with curiosity and experimenting and like whatever the outcome is, it's a learning experience. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like one way. Another way is I kind of, when I'm thinking about like in my book, I talk about like sort of what I consider like my four mindfulness principles. And I like fingers crossed, I can remember them off the top of my head. Cause I did an interview before where I like totally forgot one of them. And it was so embarrassing. <laughs> You're like, I'll get back to you later. On yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So one is like press pause and be present, right? Like often there's this idea that you need to spend a significant chunk of your day, like, you know, meditating or whatever. And even if it's like inviting yourself to like press pause in the moment and what I sometimes have, like some of my clients do particularly say like my clients who are neurodivergent, who sometimes forget to eat or need reminders to eat. Like I necessarily set a reminder to eat, but set a reminder for a bit of a wellness check. Like, how are you doing? Like, yes, hunger, but also maybe thirst, maybe mood. Like what do you need kind of in that moment? But even allowing yourself to press pause, even if it's for, you know, like, half a minute to kind of just check in and see where things are at right now and just kind of allow yourself to ground. Two is, you know, one I already talked about, which is sensing, not slowing, right? Like when we talk about quote unquote, slowing down in mindful eating or even in mindfulness in general, it's really about engaging your senses. Like what is your sense of sight telling you, your sense of hearing, taste, touch, smell. It's really about kind of engaging those rather than like slowing down just so that you're stretching out your meal for, you know, I'm sure you've heard like it takes your stomach like X amount of minutes to tell your brain that it's full. Like, no, that's not what this is about. It's really just about allowing you to pay attention to your senses. Three is curiosity, not judgment, which I like kind of briefly talked about, you know, not necessarily looking for like a right or wrong way to do something, but really just allowing for whatever outcome happens. And then fourth is like practice, not perfection. And again, it's the same idea that I think sometimes whether it's with mindful eating or intuitive eating, I think it's very easy to get stuck in this idea of trying to do it quote unquote perfectly. And there is no perfect, there is no one right answer. And so it's really thinking of it as like an ongoing practice. Like what am I continuing to learn or possibly unlearn as I'm practicing engaging with food or engaging with other aspects of life in this different way? I really, really enjoy the way you wrote these four points. (laughs) Beautifully 
uh, articulated. So that's really great. And I think you do do a really great job keeping it anti-diet when you break it down in those four principles. And they're also really applicable for life as well. So I'm excited that you are able to share those today. I think the idea of pressing pause has been extremely transformational for so many, especially those who avoid taking care of themselves, not intentionally, but maybe they're just always busy, busy, busy and end up not Mm. really making themselves a priority. But I love that idea of the wellness check and even just calling it that versus checking for food might help you as someone with an eating disorder, it might be easier to take that pause and say, I'm just checking in with myself, Mm -hmm. you know? So that was really helpful to hear. Well, I think you have just been a fabulous guest. It's been really helpful to hear your take on this. And I think it will be eye-opening for listeners to hear mindfulness the way it's meant to be, you know, spoken about and learned. So I appreciate it. Where might listeners be able to access your work? Sure. So I have my website, which is my name, which is not spelled how it's pronounced. So it's vincicioi.com. It's V-I-N-C-C-I-T-S-U-I.com. And I just launched my new website. I'm sure by the time, yeah, the episode comes out, it would have been like officially launched. It's kind of in like soft launch mode right now. Yeah. So you can find out more about like the work that I do. Unfortunately, I can only take clients who are in certain provinces in Canada, but you know, like you can learn more about the mindful eating workbook and some of the other stuff that I do. So yeah, so that's probably the best place to find me. I'm also on social media. I don't post a ton, but I'm at Vinci RD on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And that's a place where people can connect as well. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. So before I let you go, Do you have any words of wisdom to let the audience leave with today? Uh, hmm. Yeah, like I think mindful eating is like such an interesting topic because I think it's definitely not as trendy as it was like several years ago. Like I think now the trendy thing is like intuitive eating or like, you know, going from body positivity to body neutrality seems to be like the next thing. And I think like my own, I don't know if it's like criticism or weariness of like really like pushing it is that like I personally recognize that it is at the end of the day an individual skill and really puts the onus on the individual and I think like what we need and you know I need to still learn more about too is like looking at how some of the larger systems contribute to weight stigma and disordered eating and eating disorders and what that means for people who don't have as much privilege, like is mindful eating something that's accessible to them? And even if it was like, is it even helpful for them for what their version of recovery looks like? Like, I think Mm -hmm. there's like a lot more to this conversation than just individual recovery. I think it's really looking at some of like 
the broader systems of oppression, but I know that's still something that I'm trying to do a lot of learning and unlearning around and, you know, can definitely be several (laughs) podcast episodes on their own, but, you know, just something to, I think, like start thinking about beyond some of these like individual based or focused frameworks. Mm, Such a good point. And I think you and I, and many of us are consistently learning about how systems of oppression really do come into play with many of these paradigms and consistently making sure, you know, is this accessible to people or not? And on a broader picture, is it helpful or might it be hurtful? And I think it's a conversation that needs to be consistently had. So I appreciate you saying that. And, you know, in the meantime, I think taking this as an individual approach and if it works for you and your recovery, then it works, right? And it's helpful. So yeah, thank you so much, Vinci, for saying that. And for being here. And again, I appreciate you and I hope you have a beautiful day. Yeah, you too. Thanks again for having me. You're very welcome. 